Hey y'all, a quick word before we get started. It was not our original intention to release an episode about lynch mobs the day after MLK Day. The idea to dive into this topic was inspired by the crazy events of our last episode about the Santa Claus bank robbery, and this episode would have been released sooner if not for a series of unfortunate illnesses in our households. That being said, we do not feel that the timing is inappropriate. Rather than look away from the horrors of our violent racist history, let's acknowledge it learn from it, and honor the bravery and historic efforts of those who have endured it and fought against it, and work toward a society where such atrocities are truly unthinkable pieces of the past. Now for the disclaimer. Outlaws and Scorned Women is for entertainment purposes only, and nothing that is said should be interpreted as actual legal advice. It's also chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. So it's a totally overused expression, but it is one of those, it is what it is. <laughs> you can look back on it. It's what you it is. You can stare at it, but it just is. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no changing that. Speaking of things that we have to look back on and cannot change, we are... Wait, hold on. Who are we? Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's intro this show. We oh are hurtling God. through space on a giant <laughs> rock. <laughs> is it the third one from the sun? I've heard that. Uh, so, uh, let's start, let's bring the invisible people into the room with us. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. Uh, my name is Stephanie. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a melodramatic lady who likes stories a lot. And you are. I'm Stephanie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm sidekick Steph, and uh, whatever. I just happen to have a law degree. Um, <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy these romps through Texas history and mm-hmm. learning about you know our rich and deep heritage, yeah. um, especially as it pertains to to crime. <laughs> and, well, I and think... those those deeds done oh in the oh, dark of night. It's a journey of exploration and development. <laughs> no, I find that I'm constantly confronted and challenged by my own preconceptions. The way we right. learn things mm-hmm. in school in our great state of Texas. Oh, yeah. I mean, seventh grade is devoted entirely to Texas history. But wow. we do not study some of the, the more hideous um, mm-hmm. underbelly moments yeah. of... It is very... Like, uh, my son is in seventh grade right now. He's taking Texas history, which I was shocked to find out um, when I I married Lucas and we were talking about, like, our school experience that, uh, you know, they don't take because he went to middle school in California. You know, they don't take California history. Other states don't have state history as like part of your required cu- as a curriculum requirement it yeah. is compulsory you and will learn when his family moved here and he had to finish out his senior year of high school they didn't want to let him graduate until he took a texas history class that's true. the last year of his public education and they were like no 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 you come to texas you learn about texas yes it is <laughs> when you have graduated from our system you will right. have learned a thing or two about texas but you will have learned what we want you to have learned right. not the actual raw bloody truth of it which is what we're getting into now i i will say i don't know what my brain would have done with some of this right? information in 7th grade this is maybe I mean, not it is pretty heavy yeah. and it is a very you know, tortured and twisted path we take mm-hmm. to get to where we are. Particularly the subject that we're going to be getting into today. And we're going to have to, this is a lot uh, that we're going to have to get into. So this is going to be split into two uh, episodes. So um, 
to real quick to sort of because I realize that maybe this isn't always clear. Uh, the way this show works is, you know, we uh, are talking for a second, but then I'm going to tell us a little story from Texas history. And then after that, we're going to break down the history and the legalities and everything. Uh, so that is sort of the format. I feel like that should be explained. I feel like maybe it probably didn't need to be explained, but I needed it. Oh, I like that. Road yeah, tips are good. Mm-hmm. Signposting where we've been and where we're going is important. <laughs> I and like structure. So, yeah, I'm going to be telling a little story here in a minute about the charming subject of lynch mobs in Texas. Like, this is something that we cannot look away from as a, a very real and uh, and horrific part of the history of our beloved state is this tendency to take justice into your own hands um, for whatever reason, but usually racially motivated. Let's not kid ourselves. So um, this is going to be super fun. We're going to do this for two episodes. So uh, buckle up, buttercups. Let's get into this. Before we get into the long and ugly history of lynch mobs and how they evolved from groups of citizens banding together to catch cattle rustlers in post-Civil War Texas to the ultimate hideous expression of hate in our country, um, I wanted to read y'all a little story. Now, I normally don't read directly from text when I tell the stories on the show, but this one was just, uh, it was too great to pass up. This is an excerpt from a biography written by Albert Bigelow Payne in 1909, entitled Captain Bill MacDonald, A Story of Frontier Reform. Now, this excerpt was then republished in the June 1950 edition of Frontier Times Magazine in an article entitled The Buzzard's Waterhole Gang and Captain Bill McDonald, Texas Ranger. So y'all get ready and keep in mind (laughs) that everything you're about to hear was written in 1909. So here we go. It was in 1897 that certain citizens of San Saba County petitioned the governor to send rangers to investigate the numerous murders which had been committed in that locality, the number of assassinations then aggregating 43 within a period of 10 years. In fact, San Saba and the county lying adjacent was absolutely controlled at that time by what was nothing less than a murder society. San Saba County, situated about the center of the state, lies on the border of the great southwest wilderness and is crossed by no railroad. In an earlier day, a sort of vigilance committee, or mob, had been organized to deal with lawless characters, but in the course of time, the usual thing happened, and the committee itself became the chief menace of the community. Whatever worthy members it had originally claimed either dropped out or were removed, and were replaced by men who had a private grudge against a neighbor or desired his property or were fond of murder on general principles. In time, this deadly organization became not only a social but a political factor, and as such had gathered into its gruesome membership county officials ranging from the deputy constabulary to occupants of the judicial bench. Indeed, it seemed that a majority of the citizens in San Saba were associated together for the purpose of getting rid of, either by assassination or intimidation, the worthier element of the community. 
This society of death was well organized. It had an active membership of about 300, with obligations rigid and severe. Their meeting place was a small, natural pool of water, almost surrounded by hills. It bore the curiously appropriate name of Buzzard's Waterhole, and here the worthy order of assassins assembled once a month, usually during the full moon, to transact general business and to formulate plans for the removal of offending or superfluous neighbors. Sentinels were posted during such gatherings, and there were passwords and signs. These were forms preserved from the original organization, hardly necessary now, it would seem, since the majority of the inhabitants were in sympathy with the mob, while those who were not could hardly have been dragged to that ghastly spot. They preserved other things. They kept up the semblance of being inspired by lofty motives, and they maintained the forms that go with religious undertakings. Therefore, being duly assembled to plot murder they still opened their meetings with prayer. After which, the real business came up for transaction. Members in good standing would make known their desires, setting forth reasons why citizens in various walks of life were better dead, and the cases were considered and the decrees passed accordingly. When an election was coming on, the society decided who was to be chosen for office and who for assassination, and committees were likewise appointed to see that all was duly performed. To break up this mob and to discourage its practices in and around San Saba was the job of Texas Ranger Captain Bill McDonald and his men during the summer and fall of 1897. Captain McDonald began the work by sending over three of his men, John Sullivan, Dud Parker, and Edgar Neal, to investigate. There was plenty of trail to follow, and the rangers ran onto it everywhere. It wound in and out in a hundred directions and gathered in a regular knot around the seat of justice. Perhaps there were town and county officials who were not involved with the deadly membership, but if so, they were not discoverable. Sullivan promptly got into trouble with the sheriff by rejailing a man whom he found walking free when the state had already paid a reward for his capture. Sullivan and the sheriff both drew guns, but were kept apart, mostly due to a district judge who seemed to be holding office by virtue of the mob's favor. Captain Bill himself now came down to look over the field. He had his hands full from the start. When he arrived, the rangers were patrolling the town with guns, while a number of citizens, similarly armed, were collected about the streets. Hello, boys, he said. Are y'all going to war? Looks like it, Cap, his men replied. Captain Bill looked over the armed citizens and raised his voice loud enough for them to hear. Well, if that's the best they can do, we can lick them, can't we? he said. The armed citizens showed a reluctance in the matter of hostilities and began to edge away. MacDonald reviewed the situation, for prior to his coming, he had scarcely known what the trouble in San Saba was all about. By and by, he went to his hotel. It was about 10 o'clock, and he was sitting out in front when he saw flashes and heard shots across the public square. The mob was shooting up the town for his benefit. Captain Bill seized his gun and went up there. The main disturbance seemed to be in and about a saloon. The ranger captain pushed into the place alone and compelled every man in the assembly to put up his hands and allow himself to be disarmed. It was now evident that a man who would not be scared and who was not afraid to do things was amongst them. Members of the society felt a chill of uneasiness. Worthy citizens, heretofore silent through fear of their lives and property, began to take heart. The rangers went into camp in a picturesque spot on the banks of the San Saba River a mile from town, pitched their tents under the shelter of some immense pecan trees, staked their horses, and made themselves generally comfortable. Then they posted sentinels, for a fusillade from the society was likely to come at any time, 
and settled down to business. Evidently, they had come to stay. The society postponed its meetings. Captain Bill now began doing quiet detective work, a labor for which he had a natural aptitude. Good citizens took further courage and came to the camp with information. The ranger captain looked over the field and undertook a case particularly cold-blooded and desperate. A man named Brown, one of the society's early victims, had been hanged by that mob some ten or twelve years before, and his son Jim, though he had never attempted to avenge his father's death, had fallen under the ban. Jim Brown never even made any threats, but he must have been regarded as a menace, for one Sunday night while riding from church with his wife and her brother, he was shot dead from ambush. His wife, whose horse became frightened and ran within range, also received a painful wound. Captain Bill secured information which convinced him that one Bill Ogle had been the chief instigator in this crime, and that the father and brother of Brown's wife were likewise members of the society and concerned in the plot. He learned, in fact, that the plan had been for Mrs. Brown's brother to ride with her, and for her father, Jeff McCarthy, to carry her baby by a different route to keep it out of danger. The brother, Jim McCarthy, was to stay close to his sister to look after her horse and keep her out of harm's way while her husband was being murdered. It was due to the fact that Jim McCarthy did not perform his work well that the sister was wounded. Captain McDonald, in due course, uncovered the whole dastardly plot. The murderers now realized that trouble was in store for them. Some of the men began quietly to leave the county. Others consulted together in secluded places and plotted to kill Bill McDonald. Sympathizing citizens encouraged this movement, and anonymous threats, always the first resort of frightened criminals, began to arrive in the ranger camp. Captain Bill paid no attention to such communications. He was used to them. He went on gathering and solidifying his evidence preparatory to the arrest of Ogle and such of his associates as the proofs would warrant. Captain McDonald, one hot afternoon, was talking to an acquaintance on the streets of San Saba when he noticed a stout, surly-looking man with the village constable not far away. Now and then they looked and nodded in his direction, and presently an uncomplimentary name drifted to his ear. "'Who is that fellow talking to that sorry constable?' he asked. His companion lowered his voice to a discreet whisper. "'That is Bill Ogle,' he said. "'The worst man in the murder mob.' Captain Bill looked pleased. "'All right,' he nodded. "'I want to go see Bill Ogle.' He stepped briskly in the direction of the two men, who, seeing him approach, separated and loafed off in different directions. Captain Bill overhauled the constable. "'See here,' he said composedly. I heard you call me a name a while ago when you were talking to that murderer, Bill Ogle, who's going down the street yonder. Now, an officer of the law that throws in with a murder mob ain't worth what it'd cost to try and hang him, so if I hear any more names out of you, I'll save the county the expense of a rope. The constable attempted to mutter some denial. Captain Bill left him abruptly and set off down the street after Ogle. Ogle crossed the street and passed through the courthouse to a hardware store on the other side where a number of his mob friends had collected. Don't go over there, Captain, cautioned his friend. You'll be killed for sure. Well, I'll just go over and see, Captain Bill replied quaintly, continuing straight toward the mob store. As he entered, there was a little stir, then silence. Evidently, those present had not expected that he would walk straight among them. Here he was. They could kill him and put an end to all this trouble in short order. But somehow, they didn't do it. There seemed no good moment to begin. Captain Bill walked over and faced Bill Ogle. Come outside, he said quietly. I want to talk to you. 
Ogle hesitated. What do you want to say? He asked sullenly. Captain Bill laid his hand on Ogle's shoulder. I want to say some things to you that you might not want your friends to hear, he said, and a quiver in his voice in that moment would have meant death. Come outside. He applied a firm pressure to Ogle's shoulder and steered him for the door. The others, as silent as death, made no move. They did not offer to interfere. They did not attempt to shoot. They simply looked on, wondering. Outside, Captain Bill led Ogle to the middle of the street. It was blazing hot, and the sand burned through his boots, but he could talk to Ogle out there and keep an eye on the others, too. Now, Bill Ogle, he said in his deliberate, calm way, I know all about you. I know how you and your outfit murdered Jim Brown, just how you planned it and how you did it. I've got all the proof, and I'm going to hang you if there's any law left in this county to hang a man for a foul murder like that. That's what I'm here for. And I'm not afraid of you nor any of the men over there in that store that helped you do your killing. You are all a lot of cowards who only shoot defenseless men from ambush, and I'm going to stay here until I break up your gang and put every one of you on the gallows or behind bars. And I am going to begin with you. As Captain Bill talked, the sweat began to pour off of Ogle, and his knees seemed to weaken. Presently, they could no longer support his stout body, and he sat heavily down in the hot sand, trying weakly to make some defense. Get up, said Captain Bill. Haven't you got your gun? Ogle shook his head. Well, you better get one if you're going to go hunting for me. And there's the men over there who helped you kill Jim Brown, and your greasy-looking constable, and your sorry sheriff. Get your whole crowd together, and get ready, and then I'll gather in the whole bunch. Go on now and see what you can do. Ogle made several attempts to get on his feet, finally succeeded, and went back to his friends. Captain Bill immediately set about getting out a warrant for his arrest, but after some delay found he could not get the papers until the next morning. Fearing Ogle would escape before the warrant could be issued, Captain MacDonald instructed his rangers to keep watch, and if Ogle attempted to leave the county, to hold him until the captain could arrive with the proper papers. These were obtained the next morning, about ten o'clock, and Captain Bill met his rangers with Ogle, who had, in fact, attempted to escape. He was taken to jail, and a strong guard was set. Consternation now prevailed among the society and its friends, Members of the mob were to turn state's evidence. One John McCormick, who had been made a member by compulsion, having run into one of their meetings, had been brought from an adjoining county and would testify. A grand jury composed of exemplary citizens had been secured. And that was not all. Captain Bill one day went to the district judge, ostensibly for advice. Judge, he said, I want some legal information. The judge was attentive and took him to a quiet place. Now, judge said Captain Bill. You know that the mob holds its meetings over at the Buzzard Waterhole once a month, and the monthly meeting is about due. You know that they meet there to kill somebody or to run him out of the county and take his property, and that they've already done such deviltry as that for years. The judge, who owed his position to the influence of that same mob, assented uneasily. Well then, continued the ranger's captain, I want to know if it'll be all right for me to charge in on that meeting with my rangers and kill any of them that might make any resistance and round up the rest of them and drive them into town and put them in jail, just drive them afoot like a herd of cattle. Would that be all right, Judge? The district judge was a good deal disturbed. No, Captain, he said. I don't think you'd better undertake that. I should advise against such a move. Well, Judge, said Captain Bill, that's exactly what I propose to do. 
I'll take chances on the results and bring in the prettiest bunch of murderers you'll find anywhere. Goodbye, Judge, and thank you for the advice. However, this program was not carried out, not in full. There was no material with which to make it complete. Within a brief time from his talk with the district judge, Captain Bill's purpose was known to every member of the mob. It was a time to take to tall timber and high trees. The murder society was adjourned sine dia. The grand jury's work was difficult. It found indictments against many of the assassins, but the district judge made an effort to annul most of these actions on one ground or another and to trump up charges against the rangers. MacDonald finally gave this official a lecture, which he probably remembers yet if he is still alive. About this same time, one of the gang leveled a Winchester at Ranger Barker, who, with his revolver, shot him five times before he could pull the trigger and was promptly cleared of any wrongdoing, all of which had a wholesome effect on the community as a whole. The examining trial of Bill Ogle was an event in San Saba. Josh McCormick was chief witness for the state and was a badly scared man, in spite of the fact that the rangers had taken him to their camp and guaranteed him protection from the members of the mob. Other witnesses on both sides were frightened enough, for nobody knew what might happen before this thing ended. It was the program of the mob forces, of which Ogle and his lawyers were the acting principals, to impeach the state's witnesses and thus break down their evidence before the court as was their custom. Unfortunately for them, they selected as one of their perjurers old Jeff McCarthy, father of Brown's wife, the woman that was injured in that deadly ambush. Captain Bill knew McCarthy was an accessory to that crime, though the evidence had not been sufficient for his indictment. Furthermore, Captain Bill believed that the old man, like McCormick, had been forced into the mob and had acted under compulsion throughout. McCormick was placed on the stand and told what he knew about the society and its crimes in general and about the killing of Jim Brown in particular. When he left the stand, a number of nervous witnesses were called by the other side to swear that they would not believe McCormick on oath. Finally, old Jeff McCarthy was reached. He was frightened and trembling and in a wretched state altogether. Captain Bill watched him closely while he was making his statement concerning the worthless character of McCormick, and the old man shifted and twisted to evade those eyes that were piercing his very soul. The old man became more and more confused and miserable, and when at last he was excused, he tottered from the stand. Some restless days later, haunted by the scrutiny of Captain MacDonald, the old man presented himself at the ranger camp and made full confession of his connection with the mob, revealing the mob's secrets, its signs and passwords, the names of its members, and its gruesome oath. When the court examination adjourned, Ogle was held without bail. Through the efforts of the district attorney, it was decided to transfer Ogle's case to Lano County for final trial, on the grounds that no fair trial could be obtained in the San Saba court. In Lano County... Ogle's case was fairly tried, and he received a life sentence for the murder of Jim Brown. Two accessories to the killing were arrested, but just then, war was declared with Spain, and the rangers were hastily ordered off to protect the Rio Grande frontier, where a Mexican incursion was expected. And without Captain Bill to keep up the vigorous action and a sharp oversight over the witness stand, convictions were not obtainable. However, the San Saba campaign was a success— the society that murdered men for spite or gain or pastime no longer existed. When the next election of county officials came around, the old lot was wiped out clean and men of character and probity came into power. The roads that led to the Badlands were kept dusty with the exodus of men who had formerly gathered at the Buzzard's Water Hole, and in their stead came those who would give San Saba nobler enterprise and worthier fame. Eight rangers were among the new blood that came to rehabilitate San Saba County. 
That long winter of 1897 and 98 had not been altogether spent in chasing criminals. Those eight had found themselves wives, and in due time they were all married. And with eight established resident Texas Rangers, how could any county help but become as safe and serene as a Sunday school? All right, clap with me here. One, two, three. All right. Ear ring. (laughs) I cannot do this podcast anymore. So the whole story with the San Saba mob, right? There was, I found some blurbs that happened outside of the the article that was in the Frontier Times magazine um, about the trial of Bill Ogle. Now, the district attorney at the time, who barely got a passing mention in, uh, in Captain McDonald's biography, which I found interesting because how would you not mention this guy? W.C. Linden appeared in court in a frock coat with a pearl handle revolver on his hip. And he would gesture melodramatically with his coat so as to flash his revolver at the members of the mob who were sitting in the courtyard, courtyard, courtroom, uh, so that they would all know that he was not to be toyed with. Um, He was talking to a reporter about the speech that he gave to the jury that he thinks inspired them to actually convict him. Like his closing argument, maybe? Sure. Okay. Uh, And he says, quote, it was the most outrageous speech ever made to a jury. I told them that if they did not convict that man, then there would come over San Saba a reign of terror that would make Nero's affliction of Rome as peaceful as a kindergarten. I told them that if the man was freed, that the time would come when a man would be afraid to whisper their secrets to their own wives at the dead hour of midnight, and that they may as well tear down the courthouse, throw the law books in the river, and go back to the beasts. It was the first mob conviction in that county, and from that date, the mob began to slip and lose ground. So, it took some really ballsy, super colorful characters to be able to move into San Saba County and undo what was going on there i thought that was just really so so texas and that definitely goes right along part and parcel with how much there's a tension between the law Mm -hmm. and lawlessness right and how this lawlessness and this lawless culture Mm -hmm. has driven people to take it into their own hands and be some sort of enforcement of a code when ultimately but they like, are acting completely outside of the right. sanctioned authority of the state. Or... But like, what code? Yeah. Who wrote the code? Their Nobody code. codified your Cody code. Code, code. <laughs> like, what are you even saying? Those, in their minds, those guys are oh. the, the code. Well, yeah. They are the, the law. Like, it's, it's just, it's the code, man. You understand the code that we're going to make up as we go along. Um, hey, what's a lynch mob? Oi. <laughs> well, uh, that is... That is a really important question. So um, I'm going to break it down because, you know, since um, I don't have a legal definition, it's this has been a phenomenon Mm -hmm. that's mostly studied in, um, you know, kind of broader political science context or um, sociological definition. So but if you look at lynching Mm -hmm. to lynch is to put somebody to death by a mob, by mob action Mm -hmm. without um, legal sanction. A mob generally is just a large crowd. Um, In this context, it's particularly one that is unruly or disorderly with um, the intent to do something violent or disruptive. Mm -hmm. So we're we're generally talking about an act of violence by a group to punish or kill a person without judicial or due process. And so the um, Tuskegee Institute, I think, has been credited with um, laying out the definitive 
definition mm. um, for the purposes of uh, many studies of what is a lynch mob. And they said that um, it's understood to be the illegal killing of a person done under the pretext of service to justice, race, or tradition. Oh. So that is, um, I think, the important defining feature. So it's like built into the definition that you are lying to yourselves about why you're doing this. Well, yeah, that is a good way to put it because um, we're talking about, in general, these are outside the legal system killings and they're unlawful. Mm -hmm. So that's murder. Well, how is this a, you know, distinct phenomenon? Well, it's because of this you know, defining feature and okay. the um, why it's done. And the violence, the violent end is typically premeditated. Mm. So all of these just, it feels like murder. So to di- to distinguish it, it's the the pretext. It's the, um, it is the idea that these people were giving some sort mm-hmm. of lip service or, you know, frenzied actual belief mm-hmm. to this is about justice or this is, you know, mm-hmm. um, service to our race or tradition and there's overlap with vigilance committees. Mm. There's overlap with the idea um, of just the the mob that forms to protect against, you know, um, violence to persons or to establish and maintain community, um, yeah, community, like, community order. Yeah, like in San Saba, they had no police force whatsoever, uh, but they had a lot of people stealing their cattle. And at the time, your cattle was... It, they were worth more than gold. So because they didn't have any law enforcement, these guys just, these ranchers just banded together mm-hmm. to go find the cattle rustlers. That's and they right. were easy to find. They had their cows. So it's like, those are my cows with my brand that they're changing right now. So those are the guys. We know it's the guys. You guys agree that this, these are the guys? Yeah, we're going to hang them. That's right. And um, I think it's funny because they, the formation mm-hmm. was out of this frustration with there being no law, with right. there being no established judicial system or jail system. Mm-hmm. Um, so where that was either underdeveloped or, you know, just beginning or non-existent, as in the case on the frontier, um, that tended to be a vigilante committee situation. Right. These were these roving bands to deter mm-hmm. crime. And then um, before 1865, lynch mobs, as we understand them today, were sporadic and right. not um, not a very prevalent phenomenon. And that changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the timing and the circumstances, I guess, of the um, pervasive and overwhelming um, number of lynch mobs that arose in Texas were definitely to perpetuate a social and political structure of white supremacy. Oh, um, okay. So this so was this are, was a straight up white supremacist thing. I think that's going that's going to be the ultimate conclusion then. I mean, we'll walk through some of the um underlying justifications, mm-hmm. some of the what was reported as the impetus, but it looked like um you know, we have this land this changing landscape post civil war. Right. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And there seems to be a very violent reaction to changing race relations. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of the kind of scholarly reviews I read about this era discussed it as a type of terrorism, just enacted yeah, absolutely. on a large scale okay. against a feared subset of the population in with this desire mm-hmm. to perpetuate a particular system, a particular so, um, supremacy. So... We saw an up an uptick of uh, of lynch mob activity post Civil War because 
the slaves are freed and now all of a sudden the the ruling paradigm of white supremacy in texas is threatened and so they reacted with extreme cases of of violence and intimidation to maintain their status quo to make sure that this suppressed class remains suppressed regardless of what the law said i think that's right the, there were some interesting statistics texas was third following only mississippi and georgia for the greatest number of total lynchings during the period between 1885 and 1942. Oh, Jesus. And so there were um, a stunning um, 468 people lynched in Texas during that period. What? Okay. What's the period again? 1885 Uh to 1942. So that's like 60 years? Yes. And in one particular... what was it? Scholarly. It was a thesis. Um, trying to understand the motivations of mm-hmm. um, lynch mobs. It cited to other sources believing that there was evidence that upwards of or more than a thousand black people yeah. were lynched or murdered in Texas during 1865 to 1868. Okay, in three years. I read that six times, thinking that can't be right. It was um, it, that conclusion culminated from reviewing um listings in locales for murder okay and so it may be that the leap was made that that doesn't fall within the the definition of a lynch mob Mm -hmm. or lynching um and so far as being extrajudicial killings that fit this phenomenon so there might have been distinguishing features but that tends to highlight that we don't have a full picture yeah of the atrocities we also don't have a full picture of um you know, the victims. Yeah. Well, and it's not like there was barely even a sheriff in every town. There certainly wasn't a lot of census takers. Um, this is a, a very unchecked population. Yeah. So yeah, they would have been able to operate with impunity right. and there would be no records. And when, when there's no accountability and no consequences, and yeah, who's going to stop me? And I was... Them. Uh, who's going to stop them? <laughs> looking at them, I'm like, what? How is that even... And, and so it looks like the 468 that occurred in the, the previously stated period. Right. Those are documented. Those... Those are documented have, as lynchings. Yes. And the, that is, you have the name of the victim, mm-hmm. when it occurred, the, the manner of execution. So there is... So there's no telling. Clear documentation for, for some. Mm-hmm. And then... There's indicia that there are more that we don't even know about. So there's no telling. Right. Or or perhaps like, you know, I can imagine a vigilance committee or a lynch mob, you mm-hmm. know, acting out violently and then just walking away. Yeah. Just, and then like not even acknowledging dispersing. that it happened. Mm-hmm. And just and just. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there are reasons. I think when I was talking about the, the Texas history, we learned there were these little things that kept kind of running through my mind. Like I remember learning mm-hmm. that. um it wasn't just black people that were lynched in Texas because we had these right. vigilance committees. There were white people lynched and there were Hispanic people lynched too. Right. However, the overwhelming yeah. majority were black people. So of that 468, mm-hmm. 339 were black people. Oh. So we know that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so um, we also know... That there were 11 counties in, you know, um, the the more eastern part of the state that accounted for 80% of all of the lynching and lynching-related violence. Mm. So, I mean, there are areas where it was just entrenched and, you know, 
I don't I don't know I don't want to say common, but it was prevalent. It's it's amazing that there's so much um, you know, if you dig into it, you find out, wow, this is really a big part of our history. We were very the and um I think another thing that we'll we'll discuss throughout um today is the fact that it was the entire community that was complicit. Yeah. Um, because it was tolerated mm-hmm. and it was allowed. And, you know, I know you mentioned there were definitely people that participated in vigilance committees, you know, because they felt forced to. Yeah. But, it, you know, at some point you we have to look at the fact that it was an entire, you know, social underpinning mm-hmm. that allowed. One thing I wanted to point out, typically when I think of when I think of lynchings, I always picture a noose. But that's not a part. That's not the definition of lynching. No. It does not need to involve a noose. The San Saba mob shot people from the bushes. That's right. So people were shot. There there are just oh awful barbaric accounts. People were burned. Oh my god. People were shot. People were hanged. Mm-hmm. Um it is not it is not simply what uh, you know what comes to mind as in right. you know there is a noose. There there were stories of just horrible mm-hmm. um brutalizations of people. And uh, because they could get away with it. Yes. So is there is there like a life cycle of a lynch mob so that you sure. want to get into? Um, there there is, and mm-hmm. we should. But I will say, um, yeah, that's actually maybe that's a good. Let's talk about like the lynch mob. Um, definitely has three kind of groups mm-hmm. that um, form it, and the first would be those leaders, mm-hmm. um, and then there would be the lynchers, those who actually per, um, conduct those violent acts, and then the spectators. Oh. So the the entire phenomenon has these three kind of groups of people, and the leaders okay. tended to be upstanding members of society because they would have to have the sway to be able to they were shove this thing into motion. Yes, and they were known to be politically or financially or socially more upward, uh. <laughs> um, and they tended to direct the activities of the mob. Um, they also, by virtue of their stature and mm-hmm. station in society, were um, were also why those who participated in lynch mobs were protected. They tended to um, ensure the support and protection from the greater society. Okay, so where there was some law enforcement or where there mm-hmm. was some, you know, more developed um, judicial system. Mm-hmm. They were still able to act with impunity. Yeah. Um, they were still able to get the location of the the victim. If mm-hmm. they had been, if the um, person that the lynch mob intended to um, target had been arrested, mm-hmm. you know, they would find out where that person was going to be. Right. When they were going to be transferred. You know, um, it's pretty interesting that in all these situations, the, the lynch mob knew where to go. They knew how to get to the person. Huh. They knew how Weird. to overwhelm. Law enforcement. Yeah. And the they, they were able to overwhelm law right. enforcement. And so there's so that's a critical, I think, element. And then the lynchers tended to be less upwardly mobile people. They tended so to So these be are like the underlings. The less privileged. Yeah. Yes. The the, the, the muscle, class. the soldiers being shot into battle by the generals who had decided to instigate this entire incident. Yes. And they tended to be the ones who committed the barbaric acts and were emboldened. Mm-hmm. Um, by the fact that they were being directed and by the spectators. So I was stunned to find out that some of these lynchings that occurred in Texas were attended by thousands. What? By thousands of people. So when more than a thousand people bear witness to something so horrific and ugly, 
Um, you would imagine somebody. it would have the opposite effect, right. and it did. So um, the the spectators included men and women mm-hmm. and children. Oh my god! Um, there was there was some indication that um, that it, in at least one anecdote I read that children were brought to demonstrate the consequences of being a criminal black person. Oh, so I mean, this is just an ugly and deep wellspring uh-huh. of that whole um enabling god can you imagine like what's that what else in the world is that kid gonna grow up to do right you were being socialized that that level of not just socialized but there is no way that i mean that's an enormously impactful event that kind of energy in the crowd that kind of just just crazy mad activity and just that's gonna bake into his clay. No, that's right. That's oh. interesting that you brought that up, the feeling of it. I couldn't even imagine. Um, when I was reading it, I was just thinking, you're you're demonstrating mm-hmm. that this is tolerable. You're showing by example and Not by just, witness yeah. that this is, you know, an okay, a norm in your society, I didn't think about it's also... not. Yeah, it's not just tolerable. It would have been exhilarating. Oh, God. But <laughs> even in a in a horrifying way, it just any time that you're in a crowd that's that amped up, mm-hmm. like it feeds itself, like at a concert or mm-hmm. something, or, or a demonstration, a protest. Any time that you've got a large group of people, like that energy just exponentially compounds and compounds on itself, and it becomes this really electric thing. And if you've got people like these leaders who are directing it, because that energy, once it's built up, it's like a it's like a bomb. It could blow up however you want it to. All it needs is for somebody to direct it. Like, where's that release valve? Yeah, it's got to release somehow. Well, and think about how emboldened the people that were committing the atrocities felt mm-hmm. that these spectators came out to watch and or support. Well, yeah, they're cheering now. They're, Why they're, would I stop? Yeah, they're showing that it's Ugh. okay. And so I also imagine that a purpose, um, it wasn't stated explicitly, but I think we can just surmise. Huh. Are we making was, a leap? Okay. Yeah. Intended to terrorize. Oh, yeah. It was intended to be a full display mm-hmm. of what could happen to you if if you're not with us, you're against us. Yes. And, um, you know, I did read that while there's this um, false justification mm-hmm. that these uh, mobs were intending to impose order or law, a, like a there wasn't kind always of order. a criminal offense that precipitated no. these events. Sometimes people were lynched for disagreeing with the mob or Hmm. um one guy was um lynched for getting into an argument with a white woman okay Uh, so what you know this is this is the era and um it was suggested that 40 percent of reported lynchings um they were instigated by a murder or attempted murder charge okay but that doesn't mean that that charge wasn't based on rumor right. or wasn't, you know, wasn't a frenzied charge. So um, less than half of the lynchings that we have recorded, is this from the 1865 to 1940 something? No, this era? is the 1885 okay. to 1942. And then okay. another, that's what I meant. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> and then another 26% were precipitated by allegations of rape or attempted rape. So both of those. But these are all just precipitated by accusations. That Right. The, the charge. Just now, by the charge of it. And then the, the the notion is if if they were charged, well then there's then a, there be let them be processed legal action. The, the wheels are starting to turn. There's no reason to 
there's no reason to, to step engage in. in this outside the system, particularly if any of these people being charged were of color in this time. This is, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s. They are going to be convicted. Let's let's not play like there is a fair and impartial no, legal right. system for minorities uh, or people of color in Texas at this time. Uh, so why not just let the wheels of justice turn? And that does highlight that it's a pretext of yeah. we're here to serve justice. Justice is going to be served. Why are you really here? So the justice angle, that's it. Let me just. Oh, oh. So I found it interesting that um, a lot of these um, justice oriented mm-hmm. um, lynchings were also kind of um, Im- imbued with pageantry. There would be kind of a mock trial, a simulated trial that occurred oh, before the okay. crowd, like something that tried to elicit a confession or to to call out the charge or what, you know, um, the person to be lynched had done and to gain that um, approval from the So crowd. if you can and get so the crowd were, to yell, yeah, so is this the person guilty? Is this person guilty? Yeah, then now everybody is involved. So everybody that is, what I is complicit. It to be. But I do know several of the sources commented that there was this this kind of this pretend trial. Okay. This, you know, simulated procedural trial. So yeah. And I think it was. It was to to kind of serve the end of justice. See, we had this. They really, so then they had to go and have their big mock trial to to really dress up the pretext of serving justice. And that's right, because serving justice, there was the, this um, justification was built on the premise Mm -hmm. that either justice would come too slow, it would be delayed or not at all. Or some Yankee lawyer might step in. and technicality for which justice would not be served. Ugh. And so um, the evidence mm-hmm. at the time, even at that time, with these nascent kind of judicial systems, right. does not bear that out. No. There, there was no lack of a speedy trial for these um, people that were charged. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of perverse to suggest that the legal system back then was operating to the favor right. of black people. No. Um, and there's no support that, you know, the trials wouldn't have occurred, wouldn't have occurred in accordance with law. There was mm-hmm. um, one really terrible instance where a man had been through the trial. He was, uh, the verdict was read and he was going to be sentenced by the jury mm-hmm. before, like as the jurors were reading out um, the verdict, the mob showed up, took him. Oh my God. And lynched him. He was about and to so, be, did they ever, did we find out? Like, I mean, I know he got lynched, so the verdict was what it was mm-hmm. by the mob. What would his verdict have actually been? Do we what know? What would his sentence have yeah. been? So I I don't know. That okay. wasn't in there. It was just that, like, come on. Clearly, this isn't about justice. No. This is a little more bloodlusty. So, um, yeah, bloodlusty. Oh, there is a justification that everybody knows, and it's just there, and it was so written about. Um, It's this false chivalry Mm -hmm. justification Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that the reason um, a lot of these lynch mobs were operating was in defense of the honor and virtue of white womanhood. Yes. Right. So that was... Oh. And some of the commentary is so... Bizarro world. I mean, it. There was definitely like uh, suggestions of the fear of the superior sexual prowess. 
of the black man. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're wait, they're, who's making that comment? Oh my gosh! It so that is um, well in a, in a couple of the scholarly text they discussed that that was something, and it was in less. Um, I think pretty terms, <laughs> and there, there there was a fear of the uh, of black men having an elevated mm-hmm. read equal status to white men, mm-hmm. and therefore the ability to cohabitate. Mm. Uh-huh. And so that drove a lot of this fear and anger. The real thing there was, I think, if you if you strip it down, this false chivalry notion, it was. Quite simply, nothing to do with women no. or protecting women's virtue. It, had, it was elevating, elevating in finger quotes, mm-hmm. or recognizing the equality mm-hmm. of black men well, and women. And it was and about fragile, non-white, fragile men. white masculinity. If there's, if they're being intimidated by the perceived sexual prowess of black men, then <laughs> this is this is a fragile masculinity moment but taken to its most horrific extreme. In the backdrop of, you know, economic times were changing. Um, there was a lot of social upheaval mm-hmm. in the post-Civil War era. I mean, that just doesn't even sound like it could be a reel on the list. You right. Know? Wait, really? Yeah, checklist, you know, um, worry about rebuilding society, worry about mm-hmm. the damaging economic dire circumstance, um, my my white wife's virue. I mean, like it, it was just, I'm just absolutely not believing along that's with on the, the, list. the pretext of justice. It was entirely a pretext, an excuse to be a racist asshole. And um, the there is another justification that I think has has some it merits discussion. Oh, do tell. So it kept coming up, um, temporary insanity. I'm sorry. So. You know, this mob violence, one of the justifications for how things occurred the way they occurred was these were just instances of this like mob hysteria, temporary insanity. But that really doesn't quite square with the reality Mm -hmm. that we've also alluded to that these murders, these lynchings were premeditated. They Mm -hmm. were very thought out. They didn't erupt out of some crazy juice that occurred in a single moment <laughs> there was, and then everybody was confused. There was this strange mist that rolled into town and made everybody insane and then it rolled out and we're all a little embarrassed now. No. 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 And we've talked about uh, on the show before about insanity versus premeditation and like how you could not have been insane in that moment if you had the, the wherewithal to plan what you were doing, Charles J. Whitman. That's right. And like... That's well, that's not a thing. Even our Santa Claus robber, that story <laughs> highlights that the mob, mm-hmm. they were looking for him. Yeah. They were like knocking on doors. Like if you if you are, you know, pounding the streets mm-hmm. trying to find your way in, right. to get him. You know, if you had already planned mm-hmm. that you don't like that he's going to try to get off on the insane, you know, insanity defense mm-hmm. and that's got you riled up. There were there was a lot of planning and coordinating and directing going on. Um which did does tend to undermine. I do see, not to in any way agree with any lynch mob's justification of its actions, but I can see there would be a point, we talked about that energy of a group of people getting really, really amped up mm-hmm. and moving towards violence. There's a tipping point beyond which nobody has control of that situation anymore. And that's where I would think people could start to get the mass hysteria notion, where you get the angry mob. That mm-hmm. is that is beyond 
individual person's rational ability and into a, a big, massive, uh, vicious animal with a thousand legs, you know? Sure, I see that. I mean, that's kind of like um, like a riot. Right. Right. I definitely appreciate that. And I do think, um, and as we talk, you know, next time about, you know, the other side, mm-hmm. the, the the era that follows this peak of, of lynch mob activity in Texas, um, there were definitely times I would say that there's some tipping point for which somebody could not have really intervened. Well. Yeah. It seems like to me, and and I might just be judgy. It just feels Go like an after judge. the fact justification. Oh right? yeah. If you are looking at yourself through the reflecting pool, you know, you don't want to be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just living in a town where we're like a bloodthirsty murder cult. Yeah. Like, you no, want no. to say no? These we are were good swept people. up, yeah. And this was something that it was, was done to us as much as it was done. It was the devil, to somebody else, right? Walking in our town. These are good people. We wouldn't do a thing like that, except we super did. <laughs> and yeah. I agree with you. There is, yeah, that does there sound. There would be a lot of after the energy. Fashion. There would be a lot of, um, yeah. I, I could see that that would be a very yeah. just sort of that moment energized. After- Kind of yeah. tinder keg, or is that what it's called? Powder yeah. keg. Powder it's keg. Powder keg. There we go. I'm like, what, what is we the don't, word? We don't actually blow things up, so we don't know what the terminology That's is. That's right. It's a, oh. it's a boom-de-boom. Yeah. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> it's a barrel. Yeah. It says TNT on the side. That's right. right? <laughs> I'm going to say boom-de-boom for the rest of my life. So, right. It's just not completely intellectually honest. Because there were reports that, you know... People would take a train in to come see a lynching. What? 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 If you have time to get a train ticket, that shit is pre-fucking meditated. Well, like, there was flyers. Because it's not like this was on Twitter, where you could just be like, oh my God, it's going to be a lynching. Hashtag lynching, I guess is what you would say. I don't know how to. Very, more. more I don't know how to hashtag a hate crime uh, that I am planning because I would never. And it uh, just gave myself hives even saying it. But so there's no way to notify the public in a very quick and spontaneous way that you're planning on lynching someone. Yeah. If you're if you're able to take a train ride in from another town, you had some prior notice. No, that's right. That's like this, right. there wasn't even phones. So really. where I so. got that tidbit from was uh, there are there are a couple um, early um, significant lynchings that caught my attention, and the one. Where I read that people came in by train <laughs> um, was a very public, publicized and awful lynching of um, Henry Smith mm-hmm. in 1893. Oof. And there were reports that thousands of people arrived on trains to spectate. How and they you, attended. What is that fucking train so ride like? That and that lynching was so well publicized. It made it into the New York Times. Holy shit. What? Okay, what? <sighs> What did Henry Smith do? We can't. What, I, I mean. I mean, okay. Tell. Do you have more details about this horrificness? I do. He was accused of raping a young white girl. Oh, God. And um, he, he, this one, it, I don't, I don't want to share all the details. He was tortured mm-hmm. by the lynch mob. The dad what do you not of, want to share? Hand me the book and I'll read it if you want it to be in my voice instead. <laughs> what do you not want to share? Okay. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I'll show you the line. It's just terrible. Okay, she's handing me a book across the table. What are we looking at? Uh. Well, they bound him to a chair. Okay, here we go. Here we go. 
He was brought back to be lynched in Paris, Texas, where the alleged assault occurred. With Smith bound to a chair, the girl's father tortured Smith with a hot iron. Smith was then burned at the stake while thousands watched, a crime that made the front page of the New York Times. Huh. Right? So, so I mean... Here. And so the... Um, that press was... Um, this occurred during a time where more people were becoming vocal mm-hmm. that, hey, this should not be happening. Well, I imagine... Because that was what, 1897, you said? That was 1893. So by then, like, word would be traveling. Reconstruction is is well enough past that the rest of the country would have, would finally be able to turn its gaze upon the frontier and go, what are you guys doing over there? (laughs) What are you guys? There's a lot of people go over there and we never see them again. Are you guys okay? You're not okay. Oh, no. No, absolutely. imagine how that went. So four years, uh, or shortly after, there was another lynching that was quite terrible, and pictures of it made pictures. the press. Oh, and Jesus. And so between the Smith lynching and the Hilliard lynching, there was this surge in support for the anti-lynching movement. Right. And in 1897, the legislature of Texas passed an anti-lynching law. Okay. Which made it a crime to murder somebody by mob violence. Okay. And that's a pretty express, that is a very clear and concise definition. However... But how do you even implement that? Go on, sorry. Yes. No, it was still a major issue um, at the time we end, you know, our period of study right now of 1900. It was still Mm -hmm. a great issue. The, I think, fundamental reason lynch mobs were um, able to form, do their violence, disperse and then reform mm-hmm. and is because um there was shared complicity yeah. in society implicit imp- approval absolutely yeah by these societies and there was cooperation mm-hmm. by the town and the townspeople even law enforcement like yeah. providing critical information there was one story about um the a, a lynch mob wanted to um take a man and so the sheriff and the deputies conveniently left town on oh, the weekend. They had a you know, very important conference. Hmm. So things like town. that, like, oh, is the door accidentally unlocked? Uh, so we are, for this episode, because it's already, I mean, there's so much, we're going to be cutting off at 1900. That's So we're correct. doing post-Civil War mm-hmm. up through 1900. I think that is uh, a right. really good, solid structure because this is like, oh. There's so much. So, um... Are you hearing this poor dog? Just, I don't know what he's dreaming about, but it makes him sigh. He has feelings. I'm not sure the microphone's picking it up. I hope so, because he's just, his dream makes him swoon a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, I like that, you know, when when we dig into this um, research-wise, you you can just pull out these elements Mm -hmm. that seem to be present you can identify um the the main features of the phenomenon and so many reasons you know um that were stated like the frontier echo would say no this is because the criminal justice system isn't working right when yet the timing and um the the intentions sometimes Mm -hmm. it was to dissuade black people from um 
you know, participating in the political process. For, from being alive, from, from being right. around, being citizens. From, you know, expecting to live and be free. Yeah. You know. Um, we, we gotta crush that. And the, what's the best way to do that? Um, horrifying violence. Sudden, horrifying, premeditated violence. And, uh, it would dissuade me from many things. So, And even in, um, there was a notably lawless um, region in um, South Texas where... Wait, m- notably lawless for Texas? For Texas, well, it was just, um, I think, an extension of... When you're talking about the frontier, I guess it's all of those outer edges. Mm-hmm. And I guess in... It, the farther out you go in what's um, established territory of Texas, you have these frontiers. And I guess I that... Mean, how did we ever move across this continent? And isn't it interesting? It's that always so a border. scary. Like the borderland. A yeah. border is always a place well, because that's... I think it takes a certain kind of person. A person who has that that sort of leap out beyond, beyond the border of civilization spirit which is born of an extreme nature. It's not just so you can just take a stroll around the block and be on the be in a pioneer state of mind. It takes that kind of person to to go out into the borders. And so it's those people that go out and start planting the seeds of civilization on the borders. And that's where there is no law. Civilization hasn't caught up with them yet. So, right. And I guess when I say lawless, um, I was thinking about how... Um, you know, yeah, the, the the areas of the frontier were some of the most violent. Mm-hmm. And um, in Texas, mid-1870s, lynching was an oppressive tool mm-hmm. um, aimed towards Black people and Mexican-Americans. And um, it looks like that, I mean, there were intermittent efforts to kind of mm-hmm. destroy this momentum. Um, but they were largely unsuccessful and ineffective. There were intermittent um, efforts to stop know, lynching. Grand jury investigations would not oh, result yeah. in charges. Um, you know, there would be times where a governor or even, um, you know, mayors could request support to mm-hmm. prevent lynching. But if you didn't do it soon enough mm-hmm. with enough haste, it would be too late to prevent a lynching. Um, now, uh, in this wonderful book um, by Michael Ahrens called Lone Star Law, there's a, a note that it says lynching became the dominant mode of execution in Texas. In 1891, Governor Jim Hogg noted that 27 persons were hung by law in that year for their murders, while 140 Texans were lynched. Gah. So, so that is um, highly telling of what the, the, the tension, this conflict between yeah. our judicial system yeah. that is intended to... Like, protect your rights, afford you due process, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, as a state, protect mm-hmm. society from a criminal element to, you know, this unlawful when you have, execution that was occurring. Like the justice system is in place. The, the, the machinery of justice is in place and it's chugging along and it was able to take care of in, in whatever capacity it was working on, on those 20-something people but six, seven times as many people were subject to outlaw justice. And that's insane. That's right. And, you know, the scale of it. I mean, that just... That's so many. It was just every town all right. over Texas. Lynching was a thing that was going to happen. It was like the weather. That's right. And it's just, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty appalling when you look at it closely. 
Now, like if this was a mainstay for a good number of decades mm -hmm. and it was it was a go-to tool yeah. in the belt of you know oppressive mm -hmm. white texas to to keep it oppressive white texas yeah and so um yeah i was really um confronted with a lot of misunderstanding and misconception yeah. of the way this era of our history went yeah because you know what they don't mention in seventh wow. grade texas history class any of this ever i was stunned when i was like google lynch mobs in texas at the number of the variety of results there, was and there are sources stunning the yeah. reporting on it the fact there was so much reporting on it yeah there's commentary about what people are saying about you know whether or not they they had support and how much support mm -hmm. and what their reasons for supporting or slightly disapproving yeah. of these, you know, just barbaric acts. And so racial animus, just, you know, this mm -hmm. animating kind of um, dominating factor, it was just undeniable to this phenomenon. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it, it was about race. Absolutely. Yes. There are, you know, like the, the, the San Saba story doesn't focus on that at all because it really wants to focus on a successful story uh, on a case in which the law did in fact prevail. It, it only makes us feel good for a little bit, but then you got, you got to balance it out against the reality of the situation, which was that it was just a gigantic racist air, just this atmosphere that loomed over the entire gigantic state of Texas. And I do love that the San Saba story represents um, a, a change of tide, a commitment yes. to acting within the law and relying mm -hmm. on our legal institutions to right. process and to to deal with, you know, um, with crime. Because this was with, 1897. We're right about mm -hmm. to turn the century. That's right. Because that is the, that is the purpose mm -hmm. that institution serves. That is what we exchange in the social contract. You know, we right. give up the freedom to go out and run amok in a mob and murder people. We right. give that up because we want safety through law enforcement mm -hmm. and the judicial system to in, impose order and right. protection of liberty for all. And like the only way to make sure that you are not the next person scooped up by the mob and taken to the gallows is to have law yes. in place. Like the mob is a fickle bitch it could come for you. You don't know. And what is that? Is it the Ouroboros, the whole snake? Yeah, the snake its tail because tail. it's this this idea that it was lawlessness that drove these mobs right. to behave in a total lawless, lawless way. capacity, and it drove more lawlessness, mm -hmm. which incited this need yeah. to go out there and and deter lawlessness and. Well, and by the time that, like, the San Saba situation, by the time the rangers showed up, there was the mob, and then there was the anti-mob mob. And so basically it was a gang war going on in San Saba between the mob and the people who were like, the mob is terrible. And so it was just all this crossover violence going on. It was just madness. But yeah, so hey... um, do you have... Do we, do so we I think we... I think note, we're, we have like made it. We're... we're I mean, we are ready. So now we are. I mean, where we leave our intrepid story. Yeah, because we gotta, we gotta stop. This is there was, you know, I gotta the, go hug a puppy or something. Sure. <laughs> the anti-lynching law mm -hmm. was passed in 1897. Good. And yeah. um, you know, initially it's gonna sputter, but mm -hmm. but let's talk about 
what we do to get out of this era right. next time. Okay, so next time we're going to talk about that turning point of there's actually a law that makes killing somebody with mob violence illegal. Because and you like, need a law. You have to actually say it. That's the thing about so, so much about what I'm learning with this exploration of Texas law with you is that Texas law is like, so this shouldn't have to be said, but we're going to say it. You shouldn't use a mob to kill people. So here's the thing. Uh, my faith in humanity, I don't know about yours, has taken a pretty solid hit from all of this study of uh, what humans are capable of doing in the name of maintaining their own privilege and status. And and it's hard to digest the fact that the state that I love came from this. Like, oh. this is where my roots, this is the soil my roots are dug into. Yeah. So to to reaffirm our faith in humanity, would you like to hear one of the lovely reviews Oh, that one of our fans has written. I sure would. Hold on, I'm trying to pull it up. Okay, uh, so here we have a review from uh, a a wonderful person by the name of Sonano. I see you, Sonano, and I love you. The review is entitled, Fantastic! Exclamation point. This is a highly entertaining podcast, definitely recommended for anyone who likes hearing about murder, anyone who likes Texas, and anyone who enjoys fun. Thank you, Sonano. I also enjoy fun. Uh, so, I mean, bless your heart, but in the good way, you have put a Band-Aid over m the parts of my soul that are bleeding from this study of, of lynch mobs, and I thank you so much. I echo that sentiment <laughs> entirely. I, too, like fun, I think. <laughs> and I... I very much enjoy that you listen to I have podcast. been told that fun is a thing that I have had. And upon reflection, I enjoyed it. I what do are the elements of fun. <laughs> Let's talk about the life cycle of a fun, <laughs> shall we? All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We do appreciate you. If you're enjoying the show, please hop over to iTunes and drop us a five-star rating and a review. The reviews in particular make our little hearts go pity-pat. Also, please note that we are moving homes on the internet. You can find us at outlawsandscornedwomen.podbean.com. Also on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. -L. If you'd like to shoot us an email with questions or comments or adorable pictures of your dog, send it to outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. As always, we are not journalists or investigators or etc. So links to our sources will be posted on the website and i think that's everything so we'll see you next week for part two of texas lynch mobs mm -hmm.